The uh, past few months, really going back to late spring, I've shared on Sunday evenings, yes, I said that correctly, Sunday evenings, about 20 messages on evangelism. The, the series was called uh, Evangelism Episodes, and have done about as exhaustive uh, a look at that subject, personal soul winning, as I can do, and we're going to move on from that and begin an expository study on Sunday evenings of 1 Corinthians. And since 1 Corinthians is 16 chapters long, and since it's taking, taken me nearly a year to get through the first three chapters of Philippians, you do the math. Uh, if everything were equal, uh, it would be about uh, what, uh, I don't know, uh, five, six years or so in preaching through 1 Corinthians. But I'm not going to do that, Lord willing, I don't believe, because it's a, uh, it's a different type of text. It's a bit more narrative in, uh, kind of, it's not narrative, it, it's an epistle, it's a letter. But uh, it, um, larger chunks of 1 Corinthians can be taken than what is the case in Philippians. And so I trust I'm not going to require six years to complete a Sunday evening study in 1 Corinthians. With that said, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians, and I want to bring an introductory message for all of us uh, as we've gathered this morning. <clears throat> Many, some of you uh, will be involved in small groups, and you're already involved in small groups on Sunday evenings uh, and other times, and you might not catch all of the Sunday evening messages. You can watch them online, but I wanted us to all get started at the same time in this New Testament book. So if you'd make your way to 1 Corinthians for an introduction of this book this morning. And we're going to look at uh, the first one and a half verses of chapter 1 and then verse 14 of chapter um, four, uh, verse 40 of chapter 14 in just a bit. And we'll turn to that then. But the first thing I want us to do is consider the particulars uh, of this book, the big picture of the book. Consider the facts that we are going to be studying for the next many, many months, in fact, even a couple of years likely, on Sunday evenings, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. We'll look at verses 1 through 9 of 1 Corinthians this evening. You can see that in your bulletin. 1 Corinthians is a book in Scripture which arguably has generated as much hot debate as maybe just about any other book, at least it rivals any other book, in the controversy. And the controversy is not among theological liberals and theological conservatives. Uh, it's, not, it's not really between Bible believers and non-Bible believers. The controversies which uh, arise from a study of 1 Corinthians are among solid Bible-believing folks. That is, those of us who truly do see that the Word of God is inspired, it is inerrant, it's authoritative, 
and, and we embrace the orthodox theology of the word of God. So the, uh, the issue is not among those with whom we would disagree in lots of ways, and it's not really among those with whom we disagree uh, in any of these ways. The issue is how it is interpreted. What we understand the book to be saying, the various uh, differences of interpretation and understanding lead to uh, all kinds of differences of practical expression, how it will play out in our lives. Just think about these. Think about these hot topic items that 1 Corinthians addresses. It addresses such things as sin in the church and sin in the church, which was so pronounced that even the heathen did not identify with that type of sin. Uh, even uh, the heathen would say, oh, no, no, that is, that is a step too far. And yet the Corinthians, Paul said, uh, were actually um, impressed uh, with, uh, with what they were uh, doing and what was in their churches, uh, as amazing as that kind of thing is, glorying and that sort of thing. And the need for discipline, the need for church discipline. You want to get a hot button item? Just look at the normal regular church in America and excommunicate an unrepentant sinning member and the fur is going to fly. And so that issue is addressed to a great degree in this book. The issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I'm guessing uh, even among us, if we were to take a, 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 do a questionnaire about what do you believe the Word of God teaches about what is marriage, probably we would all get that exactly the same and right. Uh, the world would not, of course, and even uh, some so-called churches would not get that right. There is a whole denomination, uh, uh, an age-old denomination, United Methodist, I'll just go ahead and name it, which recently split and with thousands of churches leaving that uh, age-old denomination over this very issue of what, what type of marriage uh, is sanctified, is ordained of God. And a whole new branch uh, has begun, global uh, Methodist church, who hold to a traditional view of marriage, and may God have his blessing upon that brand new uh, ministry and denomination. I'm thankful to say um, that uh, uh, my father-in-law and, and late mother-in-law uh, uh, were a part of that exodus from the sinking ship, which says that we no longer can tell what the Word of God says about what marriage is. God help us, please. Can, can we talk? Amen? I mean, we here know what marry, biblical marriage is, don't we? So no controversy there among us. But my guess is, my certainty in fact is, uh, that if we surveyed every one of us privately and even anonymously, we would not all have the same view of what constitutes the, um, the integrity of marriage for life. And we certainly would not have the same view of what about remarriage following divorce. And I have even know of a very small minority here who, who would say, even remarriage after the death of a spouse. So we are going to be, to some degree, all over the map, maybe to a great degree all over the map, even on that subject among solid Bible believers right here within these walls. First Corinthians deals with that subject. The role of women in the church. Oh my. 
We're in trouble now. And I've been threatening to preach a, 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 a substantial, a, a exhaustive message on that subject. I've been threatening for, for three years. Kathy's asked me 10 times, when am I going to get to it? When am I going to get to it? I'm getting to it. Mind your role. I'm getting to it. <laughs> I didn't say that, of course. Well, I can't, uh, I can't avoid it any longer. Uh, it's coming up. It's coming up. Now, not for a while, but it's coming up uh, in 1 Corinthians. Um, the sign gifts, that is, uh, miracles and healings and speaking in languages and, and the like, uh, that is covered in an exhaustive way in chapters 12 through 14 in 1 Corinthians. Well, that's a hot button item right here in our neighborhood. What I'm saying is 1 Corinthians is for us today. It might as well have been written yesterday for Redbridge Baptist Church uh, because it is that significant for us. Eschatology uh, is addressed to a bit of a degree. The resurrection of the physical body and many more fun topics. We're going to study in 1 Corinthians. Really can't wait. So this book is as contemporary as it was the day it was written. Now, here's some ground rules. If you're taking notes on this first point, a ground rule. Be open to the rare possibility that you may not have every interpretation of Scripture correct as you currently do. And I say that a little bit um, whimsically, but I am the poster child as far as stage presence of changing in midstream. You know this to be true. I did not always uh, understand or embrace the doctrines of grace. Now, to be sure, it was greater than 35 years ago uh, that I became uh, what is known as a a five-pointer and that have an understanding and can articulate the doctrines of grace, but not always. So there was a point in my Christian life that either I didn't understand it, uh, I was ignorant, or I was confused, or, or I changed on a significant point of theology. I did not always hold to the eternality of the sonship of Christ. I used to hold to incarnational sonship. Not an orthodox issue, it's not a denial of Christology, it's just a different understanding and why it matters. And I see the two Claxton boys looking at me, it's your dad who who trained me in that. I thank the Lord for that. And I adjusted because I, I believe with more insight with deeper investigation uh, and, and a better clarity of that, a number of years ago, I came to embrace a, 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 sl- a slight different uh, Brother Scott, I did not, I don't know where Scott is, he's around here somewhere. Uh, he and I share uh, uh, this particular point of theology. I did not always know and understand uh, the, the uh, complete eradication of the sin nature through redemption. To the degree that I do not ask for the forgiveness of sins. And I haven't in decades. Why don't I ask for the forgiveness of sins? First of all, do I sin? And I get a rousing, yes. Yet I don't ask for the forgiveness of sins from God. Why? Because 1 John 1, 9 says, you have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. And so I can't be cleansed any more than I am if it's from all unrighteousness. And so I confess and repent, but I didn't always hold to that position. So the point I'm making in those, and those are just illustrations off the top of my head, examples off the top of my head. 
it could be that something in 1 Corinthians that we'll cover in this very controversial, this book with many controversial subjects, it could be that there will be a point or two that you discover you were not clear, you were not certain, you were not accurate. And maybe I'm, and, and I'm not opposed to uh, saying, and I may as well as uh, also, uh, I'm not excluding myself from that ground rule, okay? Can we sign on to that ground rule to be open for God to show us something new or show us something improved <laughs> in our understanding? That is, we have a better understanding of what the text actually says. And God's people said, that's a good, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we grow like that. Okay, the particulars, the facts. First of all, the letter. The letter to the church. Chapter 1 and verse 1, chapter 16, verse 21, indicate that the author is the apostle Paul. He says it right there out of the gate. Paul called to be an apostle, the, the author of the book, and, um, and Sosthenes, more on that tonight. Uh, few dispute the authorship of Paul. In fact, the very first course I took in my Master of Divinity program uh, after God had called me to preach in 83, I took my first course in 1985, the spring of 85, uh, through Luther Rice Seminary. And in their Bible study series on this book, it says, the question of Paul writing 1 Corinthians has never been seriously questioned. The external evidence for Paul's authorship is very strong and consistent from the first century. And the researcher of, of this particular uh, series book wrote, he went on to say that his authorship, Paul's authorship, is attested by church fathers such as Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexander, who I understand quoted 1 Corinthians 130 times in his writings, and um, Tertullian quoted 1 Corinthians greater than 400 times in his writings, all attributing it, this book, to the Apostle Paul. It's a slam dunk. The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Secondly, the location of the church. Now, this is very important as we understand uh, the, as we seek to understand and interpret 1 Corinthians. Corinth was an extremely important uh, ancient city because of where it was located. You will notice that it is right here uh, in, in this color, to, right where that spot is right there, if I can hold it still, man. That's not me. That's the, that's the thing. That's the pointer. Um, and it, it is, it, it's a very, very small, like three or four mile um, little narrow patch of, of ground there between the Aegean Sea to the east and the Adriatic Sea, both of which dump into the Mediterranean Sea. What, is that, what does that matter? Well, what, why it matters is Alexander the Great saw it to be such a, of such strategic importance that he put a lot of effort and energy into building up Corinth because it was going to be the chief commerce uh, city in that region going east and west, back and forth. Uh, uh, and that follows. You're coming from the Aegean Sea. You just go across a, a little bit of land uh, instead of a whole giant country or island. Uh, or if you're coming from the west, uh, both of, of which dump into the Mediterranean. So it was of great importance. And because of that, it, it captured 
all of the issues of the day from all over the world. In fact, it became Sin City in its heyday. During the first century, the city swelled to a population of greater than half a million, a, a, a huge city in that time. And it was the Mediterranean center for idolatry and immorality. I mean, uh, it's hard to say which one was greater than the other, idolatry or immorality. Right here uh, is a, 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 a temple to Apollo. There were also temples dedicated, centers of worship, right in, uh, right in Corinth to Venus and, of course, to Apollo right here, to Athena, uh, to Poseidon, to Hermes and... In case one of the gods was missed, just like Rome, there was also a pantheon in Corinth to all the gods. So we didn't want to miss out on any of the, the, uh, the uh, idol uh, worship. So we're just going to dedicate one to him. So that's the idolatry. But folks, that's really not what it was known for. It was known for the immorality. It, there was a, a myriad of, of, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of temple prostitutes who made it their business to service the men who were coming east and west, west and east, about, around the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea. So it was truly just a, uh, a plethora of, uh, of paganism. And immorality, the twin evils, idolatry, immorality, that is where it was housed as much as anywhere else. The great linguist, F.W. Farrar, I believe is how one would pronounce uh, his last name, wrote, East and West mingled their dregs of foulness in the new Gomorrah of classic culture. And the orgies of the Paphian goddess, that is Aphrodite, were as notorious as those of Isis or Asherah. To be called a Corinthian in that day would have basically been as vile a, a term as one could have used in public. Oh, she's just a Corinthian. And that person may have been called that while in Rome or while in Ephesus. He's a Corinthian if I've ever seen one. Meaning, immoral, lascivious, pagan, and the flesh rules the day. That was what was going on at the time the church was planted by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18. That leads us into the launching of the church. The letter written about mid-80s, and we know this because... Acts 18 details the founding of the church by Paul on his second missionary journey. It would not have been written before then, obviously, because uh, the church had not been founded yet. And so the founding of the church in Acts chapter 18, he stayed there 18 months at Corinth, and he won uh, people to the Lord, such as Aquila and Priscilla, uh, 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 a primary leader of the Jewish synagogue, Crispus, um, and Paul was allowed to preach the gospel in the synagogue, uh, Sosthenes having gotten saved as well. And so the church is now planted. There are a handful of believers in a terrible pagan and immoral center of, um, of east and west traffic flow and a half a million people. My, what a situation. And uh, we look at that, folks, and it's easy to curse the darkness uh, in that day 
And, and it would have been for Paul too. But instead of cursing the darkness and cursing the darkness in our day, which we do, and it's fine to do that, certainly fine to identify uh, that which is evil, but we need to also concentrate as much or more on shining the light. Here is the answer. And the only answer for evil and uh, idolatry in our day and throughout time is the gospel, the saving gospel of Christ. It saved you out of deadness, amen? And the gospel will save. In fact, the gospel, Romans 1, is the only power of God unto salvation to anyone who will believe. And so our position, our conviction is to present the saving gospel message just like was the case with Paul in Acts chapter 18 when he landed at Corinth and he started witnessing and 18 months later a solid thriving church was born and then it was a couple of years later maybe a a few more that he heard of all of the despicable things going on in this church among its members not the city but the church itself that this letter and then the follow-up letter, 2 Corinthians, was written. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a big picture overview. Now, why specifically was this written, the book? And I'm, uh, I'm, there's a number of verses that you could say are the thematic verse. Chapter 14, if you'll look at it in verse 40, might be uh, as succinct uh, a word on, on the purpose of 1 Corinthians as we have, and it's this. Let all things, having just talked to them about all the problems and issues, let all things be done decently and in an orderly manner. Corinth was filled with chaos, with confusion, with all kinds of vices, and uh, uh, groups battling against one another and vying for authority and, uh, and prominence. And he said, you all are filled with chaos. And so he wrote the letter. The Spirit of God moved upon him to write this letter to misbehaving believers and, and um, really sinning believers, dishonoring to, uh, to the Lord. Now, if you're in a small group, many of you are, you meet in the homes once a week uh, with a, a couple of handfuls of other believers, and each time you meet, you go through a series, one, two, sometimes three uh, questions that have to do with the Sunday morning message. Appreciate Ellen uh, putting uh, so much of that together uh, uh, each week and distributing those to the, to the leaders Um, This particular week, small group folks, these points that I'm going to share right now, you're going to visit and you're going to discuss. I'm going to give you a teaser. You're going to be discussing it in light of what if this was true of my physical health? It was true of their ecclesiastical health, that is their church health. What if it were true of my physical health? What kind of shape would I be in? And so uh, when you're in your small group, you're going to address these four points. Now, I'm not going to give you the answers. I'm just giving you a teaser. You can explore and discuss the answers in your small group. First of all, what was the purpose in writing the book? Well, 
the first purpose, the first purpose is to address problems of division in the church. Chapters one through four, the Corinthians church was about as divided uh, as a church can be. There were factions, there were schisms, there were cliques, there were uh, 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 the, uh, the usins and the themins, and, and everybody seemingly, it was interpersonal conflict on steroids. If you imagine that you have a little bit of, uh, of rough chemistry with a brother or sister in Christ in this congregation, you ain't seen nothing yet. These folks were all but hating one another in this congregation. There was division, profound division. And really it had to do uh, with two misunderstandings. One, emphasizing um, man's wisdom over God's wisdom, and then the ministry of, in which servants are to be involved. If you look at chapter 3, look at chapter 3, verses um, 4 and 8. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 8. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are you not carnal? And verse 8. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Uh, they were arguing, they were, they were fussing and fighting, one, about what is the wisdom, what's, what's true wisdom, and Paul addresses that in chapters 1 and 2, and they continued to fuss and fight in chapters 3 and 4 about uh, who is the greatest servant. And, uh, and that is addressed in the problems of division. That is a primary reason why this letter was written. And folks, I'm so thankful we, that I, the best I know, we simply don't have any of which I'm uh, aware of this sort of thing. But that does not mean it couldn't arise tomorrow, right? You're in good physical health today, possibly. But tomorrow is a brand new day for a new disease which may visit you or may visit me. And I need to recognize that, be aware of it, so that I can either take preventative steps or I know how to address it if it does, in fact, surface. Well, that will, this will help us in these first chapters for preventative medicine. Secondly, oh, I just told you I wasn't going to tell you the answer, and I just did. Ooh, hate it when that happens. Forget what I said. <laughs> there was problems of discipline in the church. Chapters 5 and 6, what a mess. Chapter 5, rebuke them for fornication that the pagans didn't even practice. And then uh, about, um, about uh, disciplining a sinning member. It, uh, it, it really is a, uh, it's a, you come away from chapter 5 and 6, if you, if you didn't believe it was, it was God's word, you might feel a little bit soiled, like, oh, how could they? And yet, have I thought, in, have I had a thought life as a believer, which would be pretty much along that same line relative to evil? My guess is, my certainty is, I've visited there, I've gone there. Maybe you have as well. They were defrauding one another, they were hating one another. Maybe you've had, as a believer, uh, an Ill you've had ill will toward another believer for some, some situation. Uh, it addresses that type of thing. Problems of division. 
problems of discipline within the church and the whole subject of church discipline. Who are you to judge me? Who are you to call me on the carpet for my sin? We all sin. No one's perfect. Therefore, you're out of line at calling me on the carpet. That argument could be used. We'll address it in chapters 5 and 6. And then problems of disorder in the church. And this is the lion's share of this book, chapter 7 through 14. They didn't just have cliques and factions. They didn't just have open sin going on. They had disorderly excess. Uh, more than any other church that Paul wrote, to whom he wrote. And this is in detail in chapter 7 through 14. Marital issues, Christian liberty issues, uh, uh, public worship, the role of women, as I've alluded to, uh, properly observing the Lord's Supper, the gifts, languages, uh, interpretation of tongues, and, and miracles. And, I mean, lots and lots of stuff was going on in this cosmopolitan city, greatly influenced by the world, factions within. I mean, this place is ready to, it's a nuclear meltdown. Uh, and the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, addresses each and every one of these uh, and sets them in order to the degree uh, that our thematic verse, do it, church, do church life decently, in, in a proper way and without chaos, uh, and you'll be honoring the Lord. And then in chapters 15 and 16, problems of doctrine. And doctrinal issues are really uh, in the minority in this book. This book is not a book on doctrine like Romans or like Galatians, not primarily. And chapter 15, of course, sets right and clear and correct uh, the doctrine of the bodily resurrection, the resurrection of the body of, uh, of all, specifically of believers, and closes with final instructions and a benediction. Paul planted the church in the mid-50s and got word from Apollos within a year or two of all of the problems in Corinth, and it prompted the writing of the letter and the follow-up letter in 2 Corinthians. So negatively, folks, addressing issues is legitimate. Well, that preacher, he's just negative. Well, read 1 Corinthians. Read Galatians. And, and you will see the Spirit of God instructed the writers, in this case, Paul in both cases, both those books, to speak in a very scolding way. This is like you as a five-year-old getting taken to the woodshed by dad. Anybody identify with that? <laughs> Anybody here get taken to the woodshed? Courage, you're the only one courageous enough to raise your hand? You must have been a rascal. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. It is a scolding to really the greatest degree that we see in Scripture. Though it is almost harsh, it sure can set things right in the local church for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians is as vital a book of instruction today, right now, for us in 21st century, as it was in the first century. 
I'll be preaching through it on Sunday evenings. If you can't join with us at 6 p.m. in these coming months, then join online. You're invited to do that. Lord, I'm thankful for your word that you did not hide, hide under the rug, as it were, issues among your people. We read of David's immorality. We read of Moses' anger. We read of Jonah's rebellion. Of Sarah's lack of faith. All of whom knew you. And even in our own hearts and minds. We're reminded how weak I can be. How I am truly of dust. And yet in you, I'm invigorated. I'm empowered to live for you, to make a difference in this evil world. And so, Lord, would you continue to train us through Philippians about being members one of another and now begin to train us once again and retrain us and remind us about church order through 1 Corinthians so that glory would be brought to you in the church as Paul wrote to the Ephesians and so that blessing would be ours to experience, to enjoy so that evangelism would be what motivates us, the glory of God in sharing the gospel with the lost. Use your word in our lives as your authority, as instruction for correction that we might know how to serve you with vigor, with humility, So that you would anoint all that takes place within the auspices of this ministry, your church. Lord, glorify yourself in these days through your church on this corner. In your name we do pray.